0: Hello, and welcome to the JS Bach Files, episode 18. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about a couple of Bach's early works for keyboard. The first one we're going to take a look at is Bach's Capriccio on the Departure of His Most Beloved Brother, in V-flat Major, BWV 992. That's a standard English translation of the title, but the genesis of this particular piece is shrouded in some mystery and part of that mystery involves the identity of the brother who is referenced here. For many years, the brother in question was assumed to be Jakob Bach, who left in 1704 to join the Swedish army as an oboist. But various other commentators, notably Christoph Wolff, to whom I refer to a number of times in these podcasts, makes the point that the assumed dates of composition, possibly 1702, don't match up with Johann Jakob's departure, and the title of the piece quite possibly refers instead to Georg Erdmann, Bach's schoolmate with whom he had a very close relationship. But, of course, the piece itself is of interest, quite aside from the person to whom it's dedicated. It is in some ways a strange piece, but at the same time an attractive one in its own quirky way. It's divided into six different movements with significant shifts in mood between them, and it's programmatic, programmatic in a blatant and sometimes almost naive way that we don't really associate with Bach. It's not as if programmatic devices would have been unknown to Bach, even at the relatively tender age of 17. Numerous commentators refer to Kuhnau's so-called biblical sonatas, a well-known set of six pieces which employed various obvious programmatic devices as a possible antecedent for Bach's piece. Bach likely knew the work composed decades earlier, but the biblical sonatas were mostly somber in mood, even if some had a touch of the heroic, notably his musical depiction of the combat between David and Goliath. But Bach's capriccio seems, at least in part, to be tongue-in-cheek, not exactly mocking the seriousness of Kuno's work, but certainly offering an alternative approach to programmatic writing. But I should immediately add that even that point is open to interpretation. Where some commentators see a light-hearted undercurrent to even the lamenting movements in Bach's capriccio, others see those movements as expression of complete, heartfelt sincerity. And there is always the question of what the title capriccio is meant to imply. Does it in fact suggest a capricious mood or affection? And the answer is, maybe in some cases, but certainly not in other pieces making use of capriccio in the title. The word may suggest a certain freedom in construction, more than it suggests whimsicality of any sort. One of the things that stands out immediately when first encountering the capriccio is the plethora of grace notes, frequently taking the form of dissonant appoggiaturas and other ornaments of various kinds encountered immediately and throughout the first and second sections of the piece. Bach was reported to find the almost constant use of ornaments in some French keyboard music of the period excessive. But there is no question that Bach's use of ornamentation is, at, at times, almost as extensive and sounds rather gallant in a way that we don't normally expect. Is the purpose of all this ornamentation to suggest a delicacy of emotion? The opening section is labeled as an arioso, which suggests a short lyrical piece, and the tempo is marked as adagio. The subtitle for the first of six sections can be translated as a plea by the friends to prevent him from making the journey so an emphasis on sentimental gestures wouldn't be unexpected. Another stylistic feature that is obvious at first glance, particularly in the opening movement, is the degree to which Bach sticks to a limited number of rhythmic figures. The first of these we encounter is a pattern that Bach begins with two short notes, sixteenth notes, on a weak beat, the second half, or and, of beat two, that are followed by an accented long note, in this case, an eighth note on beat three, an anapestic rhythmic figure, that many commentators point to as important for this movement. This pattern appears to repeat again between the 3rd and 4th beats and several times in the measures ahead. But my description is a little misleading, because in many instances the long note, the 8th note, to which the two shorter 16th notes are attached, doesn't come off like a long note in performance because it's preceded by an appoggiatura, which, although written as a grace note, is in fact played on the beat and displaces the 8th note. So, as you'll hear in a minute, it sounds like two sixteenths serving as a pickup to four sixteenths starting on a strong beat, not exactly a classic anapestic configuration. Let's take a closer look at the main thematic material that Bach makes use of in the first movement. Here are the opening bars. <laughs> In general, the movement displays the texture of a trio sonata, that is, two melody lines above a fairly simple bass which provides harmonic support. Now admittedly, this first section of the piece doesn't show a great deal of independence between the upper two parts, considerably less than we would normally expect for Bach. In fact, for a great deal of the time, the two parts are proceeding in parallel sixths as they do in the first measure but there are glimmers of greater independence here and there in later bars, as you may have noticed. As you can hear, the melody in the top line has a gently undulating quality, generally circling around the tonic note of B-flat and devoid of dramatic gestures until, perhaps, the descending fourth that ends the first phrase. The appoggiaturas or accented non-harmonic tones that I referred to earlier on the first two of three accented beats, do provide a gentle hint of poignance, and more than one commentator has suggested that the parallel sixths I refer to represent the coaxing tone used by the brother's friends to dissuade him from making the journey. Still, there is nothing very remarkable going on here, harmonically speaking or tonally. Bach moves to F major, the key of the dominant, after a few measures, and then, right near the end of my example, on briefly to C minor before returning eventually to B flat all modulations conducted according to standard operating procedures. Melodically, I think it's also evident on a single hearing that the opening phrase provides most of the thematic material for the piece. It's true that the second phrase reaches up somewhat higher than the first, but everything comes as a logical extension of that initial idea and the descending interval at the end of the first phrase on that distinctive anapestic rhythm of two short notes followed by a long note recurs again three more times, further unifying the melodic flow. Some new elements are added as we proceed. For example, the brief descending chromatic line in the melody that you may have noticed near the end of my excerpt adds to the overall sentimentality of the mood, and, as he moves toward the end of the movement, Bach repeats the familiar short-short-long, short-short-long pattern I mentioned earlier several times in a row, even heard in the left-hand bass line, which finally makes its first significant contribution motivically with figures based on somewhat military-sounding triadic arpeggios. By the way, some commentators hear the repetition of the short, short, long rhythmic figure as the musical equivalent of repeated and persistent entreaties to the beloved brother. And, of course, the ornaments, the shakes, the mordants, the trills, the turns, remain a near-constant presence throughout the whole section. In the last three measures of the movement, The relative simplicity of the texture is to some extent abandoned as it increases to four real parts. We hear an interplay of the familiar motives, and the most active melodic line, in the alto, so to speak, finishes with a rising arpeggio pattern on the tonic chord, which, according to one commentator, suggests the rising expectations that the beloved brother might postpone or cancel his journey. By the way, you'll notice that I'm using a harpsichord for all my recorded examples of the capriccio. Bach also enjoyed playing on a clavichord, an instrument capable of more expressive nuances than a harpsichord in regard to subtle gradations in volume and even in the use of a slight vibrato. But the clavichord, always described as an intimate instrument, was much quieter, and so the harpsichord tended to be preferred for public performances and certainly for any ensemble playing so I'm going to assume that the capriccio would have most likely been performed by a harpsichord. Of course, you'll hear performances of this work on the piano as well, and that's perfectly legitimate. Late in his life, Bach owned an early version of the pianoforte, although it's unclear whether he composed any works specifically for that instrument. The next movement, Only 19 Measures in Length, bears a title that might be translated into English as a representation of the various misfortunes that could befall him in foreign lands. It appears to begin in G minor in a solemn, if not exactly foreboding tone, and faints in the direction of C minor quickly and repeatedly, cadencing there by bar 6, although a last-minute Picardy third transforms the expected C minor chord into a C major chord and prepares us for the next modulation to F minor. The melody shows a somewhat more distinctive contour than the primary theme of the first movement, especially with its plunging minor sixth in the first bar, although that interval, long thought of as a somewhat emotional melodic gesture, is somewhat obscured by the appoggiatura that initially embellishes it. Various commentators have pointed out that this dramatic fall of a minor sixth also relates quite literally to the word "casuum" in the programmatic title for this movement, a word that can be translated as fall or downwards movement. Various ornaments, trills, and accent and non-harmonic tones are again sprinkled liberally throughout the top line, and the texture is more complex this time, with fugal imitation beginning in the second bar. The alto part imitates the soprano at the fourth rather than the more customary interval of a fifth, Although it sounds in the lower octave, so it appears as if it's entering a fifth lower. Here's a simplified example of the opening subject purged of its ornamentation and its imitation by the alto and tenor voices. As the fugal imitation begins, Bach adds in some interesting and at times syncopated countersubjects, and you could hear a hint of that in my simplified example. And when the imitation begins again in a second exposition, it heads first toward F minor, and then B flat, and finally E flat major, where the last exposition is heard. After multiple imitative entrances, with no real episodic interruptions between them, as one might expect in a longer fugue, Bach brings the movement to a close in C major in order to prepare for the movement that follows it with the seventh of a dominant seventh chord on G major suspending into the final chord. We'll hear the first part of the movement in an actual performance. does this pervasive fugal imitation relate to the theme or affect of this movement? After the gentle sense of pleading and perhaps regret represented by the first movement, this occasionally thorny counterpoint may suggest that the problems ahead can be numerous and difficult. It is certainly a more difficult movement than the first, just as the title suggests. After two movements in common time, the third is in 3-4, given the unusual marking adagissimo, very much slower than usual for Bach. It's in F minor and is dramatically different in tone from the first two. The programmatic title for this movement refers to the general lamentation of his friends, and it uses a classic four-bar descending passacaglia to make the point. But it's not exactly a common version of a minor key passacaglia at least not common in Bach's works. The repeating bass line initially carries with it figured bass symbols, instructing the keyboard player to accompany it with chords in the right hand. It begins on F and goes down half a step to E natural, as if it's going to follow a chromatic pattern. But it then slips back to F before descending to D flat, and then down to B flat before coming back up to C. So in a way, it's an F, E natural, D flat, C pattern that's simply been decorated with an upper neighbor following the E natural, actually what is known as an escape tone in this context, and a free lower neighbor preceding the C. Here's a simplified example of the pascalia pattern for the first four bars without the right-hand chords. First, the bass line as written, and then without those upper and lower neighbors. <laughs> By the way, as we'll see in a minute, Bach does give us the descending chromatic version of this pattern, but starting in bar 13. As this bass line and multiple variations of it proceeds throughout the piece, it will often continue to be accompanied by chords designated by the opening figured bass symbols. How elaborate this chordal accompaniment is will be determined by the performer's particular realization of the figured bass symbols and their sense of when chordal accompaniment is appropriate, and that will naturally vary from performance to performance. Meanwhile, what's going on melodically against this bass line and accompanying chords? The right-hand melody comes in in bar 5, and it too employs a descending pattern, but it's a bit different. It descends down a natural minor pattern, F, E-flat, D-flat, C, and, after a short break, it takes the descending line still further, encompassing over an octave, with a distinctive pattern of accented dissonances slurred to offbeat consonances, a typical musical sighing or weeping figure. While the same bass line is then repeated, Bach then introduces a new melodic idea, or at least it seems new at first hearing, but it's really just a hesitating version starting on the offbeat of the pattern of accent and dissonances slurred to offbeat consonances I referred to a minute ago. There are actually two levels to the melody at this point. One pattern starts on A flat and gradually descends. The other, beginning on the second half of B3, starts on C and descends. Here's what it sounds like. <laughs> All this has happened in just the first 12 measures. From this point on, the descending passacalia pattern in the bass continues to play out, but with variations. By measure 13, the descending bass line is moving down, mostly by half steps, with the pattern breaking for cadences. The right-hand melody is varied also. It continues to operate on two levels, but now the motion is prevailingly ascending, including the resolution of apparent dissonances and the result is harmonically a bit more ambiguous as we build to something of an emotional climax. Following this climax, about halfway through the piece, the right-hand melody drops out, as you can hear at the end of my example, replaced only by the chords indicated by figured bass symbols again. And we're given a more traditional version of the descending left-hand pattern, moving down the F natural minor scale, F, E flat, D flat, C. But, in a highly embellished manner, each note of the descending pattern transformed into the root of an arpeggiated chord, which once again subsumes dissonant notes that resolve upwards, although the prevailing pattern is once again descending. As the piece moves on, a new chromatically descending version of the opening right-hand melody is encountered as the bass line also continues to descend chromatically. In the final measures, Bach brings back the opening melodic statement by the right-hand in more or less its original form, but it's the left hand that has the last word after the right-hand drops out in the last four bars leaving the left hand to first curl around chromatically before rising up dramatically to a climax on F, followed by an austere cadence on F, which we expect will serve as a dominant chord to launch the next movement back in the original key of B-flat. This is as tortured and as forcefully emotional a lament as Bach ever composed, even if perhaps lacking a bit in subtlety. The next movement is extremely short, 11 measures long, in common time, and seems more of an interlude than an independent movement. But it's quite different in mood than the previous movement, certainly more robust, if not exactly cheerful, and comes with its own narrative description reading in English translation Here Come the Friends, seeing it cannot be otherwise to take their leave. It begins in homophonic fashion, thick block chords in the first three measures, in a rhythmic pattern that recalls the passacaglia bass in the previous movement. The first chord is a dominant seventh chord on B flat that propels us almost immediately to the key of E flat. A more linear melodic motive is introduced in the fourth bar, although it's a fairly simple idea, a descending scale fragment played in thirds in the right hand before being passed to the left, in what is sometimes characterized as canonic imitation, but doesn't sound particularly like it. This rather unremarkable descending motive is passed around for the next four bars, but it's really the harmonic activity that catches the ear. After fleeting between E-flat and A-flat in the opening bars, we seem to be heading toward the key of B-flat major we had originally expected to find. But we've no sooner arrived there with a less-than-convincing cadence when we're pulled away, first to G minor and then D minor. Of course, we're just touching on these new tonal areas. We don't really hear them as completely convincing modulations. But we do get a clear sense of forward motion, even though the thematic material that propels us through the various keys is far from remarkable. The last three bars returning to B flat major and the thick block chords of the opening bars, but the descending scale mode of heard earlier makes a return right at the end and we close clearly on an F major chord. We'll hear the whole very brief movement. <laughs> The fifth movement, dubbed the Air of the Postilion, features a naive but jaunty little tune that charges up the scale in B flat and then back down again, all in the first bar with simple harmonic support from the left hand. The second bar features the most blatantly programmatic device in the whole capriccio, as a familiar rhythmic figure—an eighth followed by two sixteenths—leaps up an octave from B flat and immediately back down again, in emulation of a posthorn call marking the arrival of the mail coach which is to take the brother away. The third bar returns to the jaunty little melody, but this time has it in the opposite direction briefly, reaching down to F, where the octave leaps of the posthorn call again take control, until a new version of the descending scale-wise theme returns once again to set up a cadence on B-flat, which, once secured, gives us yet another taste of the posthorn call, launched once again from B-flat. Here's what the first section sounds like. The second section of this very short piece, 12 bars in all, offers a variant of the first section moving the original theme to the relative minor key of G minor and shifts it to the left hand in the bass clef, while the right hand adds a simple little counterpoint above it. But the leaping octaves are by no means forgotten, although they now do their leaping from G in the bass clef rather than B flat. As the second section progresses, the original theme still in the bass clef Bach turns us briefly toward D minor with a new and attractive little counterpoint in the right hand placed against the bass clef melody. Halfway through the third bar, we once again pick up on the leaping octaves of the posthorn's call, and this time we stay with it even longer, moving the octave leaps around from D to F and eventually to B flat, a unique way of bringing a modulation back to the original key of B flat a variant of the original tune takes us to the end with the leaping octaves of the posthorn call still ringing in our ears here's the second section of the movement The coach may have carried off the beloved brother at this point, but Bach is by no means finished with the posthorn's call. The last movement, considerably more formidable than the previous two, is a clever fugue in imitation of that call. Since the theme consisting only of ascending and descending octave jumps wouldn't have made much of a fugue theme, Bach gives us a somewhat more elaborate theme for the final movement, based initially on the notes of the B-flat triad, certainly within the capabilities of a posthorn, and rather military-sounding as well, which, of course, tends to buttress the idea that the brother in question really was Sebastian's brother off to join a regiment as the oboe player in the regimental band. We'll hear first the four-bar fugue theme introduced in the top voice. (laughs) ¶¶ You probably notice that Bach doesn't stick to sounding the B-flat triad very long before he adapts the motive to suggest other harmonies and move in the direction of F major, even before the first imitative voice enters. Then, in the fourth bar of my example, you heard the melody change significantly, as it began to emphasize repeated patterns of eighth notes followed by two sixteenths, a pattern that definitely takes us back to the first movement of the piece, which was so defined by rhythmic repetitions of just that sort. Also, right near the end of my excerpt, you probably noticed the first counter-subject motive, played as the tenor started its imitative answer to the subject, at the fifth but heard down an octave, which is characterized by the rhythmically distinctive octave leaps clearly deriving from the posthorn call in the previous movement. It's not the only counter-subject Bach uses in this movement, but it has to be the most memorable. As the tenor completes its answer, we hear a brief episode in which the octave-leaping posthorn call dominates and then the bass enters with the subject, and a new countersubject is added to compete with the posthorn call. After another very brief episode, almost more of a tag than a real episode, the fugue subject enters in the alto. Another episode follows with a second countersubject, based on a scale fragment in sixteenth notes moved down to the bass. Although Bach has tonicized other tonal areas briefly to this point, he hasn't really modulated to other keys for an extended period, something we would expect to see in a mature fugue and when the fugue subject returns again in the tenor, it is still in B-flat major. But the episode that follows the tenor statement of the theme is particularly interesting, even though it, too, never ventures far from B-flat major and its dominant. It takes the last bar of the subject, that eighth followed by two sixteenths pattern, and spins it out cleverly against a syncopated, repeated note alto line as the level of contrapuntal activity increases. When the bass re-enters with the fugue subject, this repeated note line is shifted to the soprano part, where it is even more noticeable and effective. The bass enters again an octave lower, and now the leaping octave posthorn call, never completely missing from the texture, once again comes to the fore in a long episode. And it is here that we first encounter a glimpse of tonal variety, with a series of rapid tonicizations, after which the subject enters in the tenor in a new key, D minor. This new key dominates for several measures, but... After the bottom of the texture drops out and a brief reference to C minor, we finally find ourselves back in B-flat where we hear overlapping fragments of the fugue theme and we race to an exciting finish to the movement and the piece as a whole. Here is the conclusion of the movement. A number of people have pointed out that this fugue is less sophisticated than Bach's many mature fugues, and of course, that's to be expected. But it's not completely guileless, and the ways in which he varies the counter-subjects and maneuvers them around the main fugue subject is actually quite creative. And the same thing could be said for the work as a whole. It stands alone among Bach's keyboard works for its extensive use of programmatic effects and the purposely naïve nature of some of those effects and there may never be complete agreement regarding the extent to which Bach was operating tongue-in-cheek here. But even if every movement may not be completely arresting from beginning to end, there's no question that taken together, they show an impressive range of expression and authentic inventiveness, especially for such a young composer. We're now going to take a somewhat more fleeting look at another early keyboard work by Bach displaying blatant programmatic elements the Sonata in D major, BWV 963, nicknamed Tema al-Imitatio, gallina Cuckoo, for its hen and cuckoo imitations in the last movement. You'll recall that I suggested a date of 1702 for the Capriccio, but some Bach scholars think that's a little too early, and it may have been closer to 1704. At any rate, that's the assumed date of composition for this Sonata in D major, So it's again a very early work with Bach just working his way, often brilliantly and sometimes quixotically, through various styles and genres of composition for the first time. Kuhnow is again frequently cited as an influence here, and as Richard D.P. Jones has written in his book The Creative Development of Johann Sebastian Bach, sonatas equip Bach with models for the non-fugal allegro, an alternative to fugue for the fast movements of his large-scale keyboard works. And in fact, this opening movement, although probably meant to be taken at more or less an allegro tempo, is not a fugue. In fact, the texture is primarily homophonic, although later movements in the sonata do make use of fugal imitation. It begins by announcing two of its most important thematic elements, the first within the first four-bar phrase of the movement, the second within the next four-bar phrase. The first of these, not surprisingly, features its most distinctive element right at the beginning, the ascending leap of a major sixth, starting on the fifth of the scale. This turns out to be the most important motive in the whole movement. After the ascending sixth, the melody drops down first by step and then by a fifth, although this last interval is freely modified when the theorem returns in varied form. My simplified example leaves out the chordal accompaniment in the left hand. The second four bars of the movement present the second most important thematic idea, but it is not, certainly at first glance, a particularly unique or memorable one. It basically consists of a descending leap of a minor third from its first note down to a descending scale fragment, which is then repeated down a step before heading to a cadence on D major. My example simplifies the texture, but does show the left-hand bass line moving in tenths with the main right-hand melody. These two ideas are then restated in varied form. For the first, the distinctive ascending major sixth leap is echoed in the left hand, and the texture is thickened a bit. For the second, the left-hand bass now moves in contrary motion against the melody, and the cadence figure is extended with a new ascending scale fragment as it now directs us to a cadence on the dominant. A third idea of some importance is introduced in bar 20 as we head back to a cadence on D major. It's, again, less than completely memorable, consisting of little more than an ascending three-note fragment. But the fact that it moves in parallel thirds, a ploy is sometimes cited as more evidence of Kuhnau's influence, and is immediately imitated in the lower octave in the left hand, gives it at least a touch of uniqueness. As we proceed through the movement, the three ideas are heard several times in varied and sometimes extended form as we move through other keys, notably B minor and E minor, but including other tonal areas as well. The three primary ideas are not always played in sequence. Fragments of idea number one, especially the ascending major sixth motive, are sometimes developed at length, sometimes in proximity to idea number two, sometimes not. We return to D major 21 bars before the end of the movement, and from that point on, the ascending major 6th motive dominates as we head to the final cadence. We'll hear the first part of the piece, including all three of the thematic ideas mentioned earlier, and the spinning out of the first as we move to B minor. After the fermata on the final chord of the first movement is a brief interlude, slower and highly improvisatory in nature. It begins on a quickly arpeggiated F-sharp major chord, actually somewhat of a jolt after the D major chord that concluded the first movement, but perfectly reasonable considering that the movement to follow is in B minor. The first thing we hear is a series of descending scale passages, starting on a dissonant note and propelling downward with dotted 16th and 32nd notes. The same pattern is then repeated twice more, each time a step higher until peaking on another dissonant note, actually the lower ninth of the F sharp major chord, and then making its way down to the tonic chord in B minor. All of this is usually played in a very elastic tempo, as befits the improvisatory quality of the movement. The harpsichord then drops down to the lower B and then flies up the scale in 16th and 32nd notes before starting the more thematically unified section of the movement. All of this takes just three measures. By the way, that dotted rhythm idea might just sound vaguely familiar if you had just listened to the entire first movement, because a similar figure pops up not quite halfway through the first movement, in preparation for a cadence in E minor. The rest of the movement, the final eleven bars, seems a bit more methodical since it tosses around a single motive for most of those eleven bars, a descending scale fragment of four notes which bounces from one voice to another before taking variant forms. But the improvisatory quality remains apparent and the tension level is fairly high, with prominent diminished chords and dissonant notes over a pedal. Although I should point out that a whole note held for three measures in the bass clef on a harpsichord doesn't really have a fighting chance of affecting the harmonic fabric for an extended period because, realistically, it just doesn't sustain that long. And that, of course, is one reason that some performers have believed that works similar to this might find a more natural home on the piano or even organ. Here's the last part of the movement. sort of improvisatory interlude, especially when followed by a fugal movement, as it will be here, suggests that this work, although labeled a sonata like Kunal's various examples, exhibits some similarities with Bach's early toccatas for keyboard. Those early toccatas, which we'll take a look at in a different episode, begin with a virtuoso opening movement quite different from the relatively stately opening movement that Bach provided for this piece. But other than that, there are some distinct similarities between the two genres. The B minor fugue that follows is a lively piece with a distinctive subject that is unusually diverse in its rhythmic identity. It begins in the tenor with an ascending leap of a fifth in quarter notes, then undulates around the B minor triad with a combination of dotted eighths, eighths, and sixteenths, before moving on to a distinctive series of repeated eighth notes tied across a strong beat and finishing with a descending line based on eighth notes and sixteenth notes. Here is a simplified example of the two measure subject by itself. The imitation comes first in the alto at the fifth, as expected, halfway through the second measure, as the left hand continues with a counter subject that begins with a rather dramatic, chromatically inflected ascending line that contributes a great deal to the momentum of the entire movement. The next entrance of the subject in the soprano returns to the original pitch level adjusted for the change in harmony. From this point on, we have a series of fugal answers, one following closely after the other, often overlapping. The first modulation is to F sharp minor, the minor dominant, which adds to the somewhat archaic quality of the movement as a whole. Bach does take care to vary the texture periodically, dropping down to two and three voices in the treble clef for a while in the middle of the movement, but there are no real episodes of any length. The imitation is almost constant, popping up in one voice after another, leading some commentators to refer to it as motet-like. Here's the opening of the movement. The next movement marked Adagio is a brief one, ten measures in all. It's in the key of D major, but takes its time getting there, starting with a secondary dominant chord that pushes us first toward the dominant of A major before settling into the new key in the second measure. The main melodic activity is relegated to the left hand in the bass clef, while the right hand provides a leisurely chordal arpeggiation above it. Here's a simplified, left-hand-only version of the figure that dominates for the first several measures it's a pretty relaxed motive but at the end of my example you could hear even without the accompanying chords in the right hand that Bach injects a little hint of tension by incorporating leaps to chromatically altered tones as he moves first to E minor and then to B minor before returning to D major. Bach finally breaks from the repeated left-hand melody in the 6th and 7th bar in favor of a more active melodic pattern, moving mostly in 16th notes. But after just two bars of this, we get a surprising tempo change, although... Not really so surprising, considering the improvisatory nature of these linking movements. It's a change to presto for all of five beats. We then pause with a fermata on a dominant seventh on D, suggesting that we're headed for G major. But as we shift the tempo once again to Allegro this time, the G major never really materializes, and we conclude a bar and a half later on D major. It's a puzzling little movement we seem always to be anticipating more dramatic gestures than we ever really experience. But if it's calmer than expected, except, of course, for the little presto spurt near the end of the movement, at least it sets us up well, in terms of contrast anyway, for the frantic final movement. Here is the entire adagio. The final movement is by far the best known in this sonata. Like the capriccio discussed earlier, it has a programmatic title, Theme in Imitation of the Hen and Cuckoo. Cuckoo is once again thought of as a likely influence here, but Jones, in his book Creative Development of Johann Sebastian Bach, which I mentioned earlier, also suggests works by Poglietti and Uccellini, among other possible influences, since they also employ bird calls. At any rate, it's a colorful movement, again a fugue, that has a distinctive personality right from the start. Repeated notes, presumably in deference to the hen, again play an important role here, as do triadic arpeggios. Let's hear the six-bar subject. Since the first two bars simply reiterate the tonic chord, Bach requires some variety and so modifies the triadic arpeggio after the second bar. A linking scale passage sets up the same triadic pattern a step higher. Then, after the same linking passage, also a step higher, he takes that same triadic pattern and repeats it three times, each time a step lower and each time suggesting a different harmony. Then the fugal answer comes in at the fifth, but an octave lower, and replicates the same pattern, now sounding in A major. The counter-subject against the fugal answer is a modest one, proceeding slowly and just filling in the harmonies at first, but picking up some rhythmic momentum as it proceeds. But when the next fugal answer arrives, back on D major, a new counter-subject has been added, one based on the familiar short-long falling minor third of the cuckoo's call. We'll hear the beginning of the movement through the cuckoo's first appearance. This is all very lively and rhythmically energetic, but there has not been a lot of harmonic or tonal variety to this point. In Measures 18 and 19, Bach shoves us into an only half-convincing A major for an episode that gives us a little relief from the fugue subject per se, even if some of the motives from the fugue theme continue to make their presence felt. But eight bars later, the subject is back in D major in the bass, complete with the same two counter counter-subjects but before any other voice can jump in with an imitative answer, we're off to another, even briefer episode, which again pushes us toward A major. Then the soprano comes in with the subject in A major, with the two counter subjects, including the cuckoo theme, below it. Then another episode intervenes, before the alto comes in with an answer in B minor, which, for the first time, casts a whole new light on a tune we've heard several times now. Another short episode, spinning out motives from the fugue theme, takes us back to D major, and the tenor takes a turn at the fugue subject, the cuckoo counter-subject, above it. From here to the end, the subject appears and reappears in various voices and in a few new keys, including E minor and G major, and various motives, including the cuckoos, quite noticeably, are spun out to the end. In the final measures, Bach introduces a series of dissonant suspensions in the inner parts to build up the tension, a practice he is to follow in a number of mature fugues as well. And we hear the fugue subject announced in the tenor one last time before the final cadence, which comes upon us almost abruptly. Here's the last part of the movement, starting a few bars before the subject appears in E minor in the lower part of the bass clef. a clever enough movement, but I think it's fair to question whether Bach's thematic material here is able to sustain interest over the length of the form. As one commentator has said and others have hinted, Bach's thematic material is sometimes asked to carry a great deal of weight in some of his earlier works, and it may not always be up to the task. Now you could argue, of course, that this final movement is a special case, After all, the whole point of it is to compose a theme in emulation of two bird calls, and so it's only natural that those bird calls would be front and center throughout most of the movement. And yet I think it's a question you can ask in regard to some of Bach's other movements, at least his longer movements as well. And it's not just the sonata in D major for which such a question is relevant. Even the more attractive and much more popular capriccio at times, again primarily in the longer movements, seems occasionally to be threatened by an overexposure of somewhat pedestrian themes, especially when those themes are unrelieved, or at least under-relieved, by harmonic and tonal variety. Nevertheless, I've always found early Bach works, including the keyboard works, to be particularly fascinating. At the very least, it gives us a glimpse into what the young composer believed was worthy thematic material, and how exactly he hoped to deal with that material and keep the listener's interest over the course of an entire piece. So, we will be coming back to some of Bach's other early keyboard works in future episodes, but for our next episode, we'll take a look at some of Bach's flute sonatas.